Welcome, witches and ghouls. We are pleased to say that we are a part of the Morbidly Beautiful podcast network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. Morbidly Beautiful supports everyone in the horror community from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And we are so happy to be part of the spooky team. Please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now on with the show. I Spit On Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where I put down my bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are back with another edition of Spinsters Book Club. We're talking Bigfoot, or Big Feats, cryptozoology, survival in the face of disaster, and of course, Max Brooks's latest novel, Deevolution, from 2020. So pick your poison and listen on. If you dare. All right. So I'm pretty sure a lot of people know who Max Brooks is, but just like a little brief bio on him. Max Brooks is the author of this novel, as well as the popular novel World War Z. He is the son of Oscar and BAFTA winning actor Anna Bancroft, who played the seductive Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate and who is married to Mel Brooks, who is a comedy actor, director, and producer, which is really interesting discovering that because I did not know that about Max Brooks. Um, And that's because he keeps his Hollywood lineage really at a distance because he's one of those people who wants to be taken his own credibility based upon himself as as an individual. That's amazing. I also didn't know that. So that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, it was really cool learning that and he's like a really interesting individual um growing up he struggled with dyslexia um in the 80s and his mother was a huge influence in helping him go through like get through that and work through his dyslexia but it really riddled him with a lot of anxiety and self-doubt and that plays a big part in a lot of his writing and his research because a lot of that is done through his own um dealing with his own anxiety so um after college he worked for uh, saturday night live and he went on to win an emmy as a writer for saturday night live as well as acted in television and for other voice over roles but he realized his true calling was the insatiable appetite for history and his natural gift of telling stories so he published his first book at the age of 31, with, which was The Zombie Survival Guide, and what he said he would turn a lifelong anxiety into something productive. So for that book, and as well as for World War Z and Evolution, he was saying that every hour of writing, he does hundreds of hours of research, which I can tell in this book, and which I love, and this is one of the things I love about this book. So. He describes it as, as an anxious person, he spends a lot of time researching disasters and trying to understand them just so that he can conquer his own fear about that. And so for him, all the knowledge that he has gained, he shares it through popular culture because not everyone's going to listen to lectures and news. And this is why he wrote World War Z, the zombie survival guide, which is dealing with a virus and a pandemic and then de-evolution, right? Natural environmental disasters. He writes about these fictional threats that actually have factual solutions. So 
As a novelist, he's also a speaker, and he has a dual fellowship at the Atlantic Council's Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has written other books that teach about military science through science fiction, Strategy Strikes Back, How Star Wars Explains Modern Military Conflict, and Winning Westeros, How Game of Thrones Explains Modern Military Conflict. De-evolution the book itself. His focus around that book was to show people being forced into isolation and hiding in terror from an unimaginable threat outside. One of the things that he said in an article that I read about him is that he knows too much. And from what he learned to understand is to not be afraid. And what makes him even more afraid and frustrated is that he sees in our world the opposite of all of that being done based upon everything he knows. Amazing. He is an interesting man. Absolutely. So moving into... De-evolution. So I'm going to give the rundown on the plot or the premise of the book that we read. De-evolution, a first-hand account of the Rainier Sasquatch massacre, is about the investigation by a reporter 13 months after said massacre occurs in the community of Greenloop, Washington. Greenloop is a small eco-centric community consisting of six smart homes and a central community house. The location is remote. It is one and a half hours south of the city of Seattle, has a a single access road and supplies are delivered by drones. The homes inside are eco-friendly, powered by sunlight and, well, poop or biogas. Many of the functions of the smart homes are automated and are controlled via iPhones and iPads. Greenloop is heavily reliant upon technology to run smoothly. The narrator is guided into the events of the massacre by the brother of Kate Holland, one of the residents of Greenloop who is still missing. The narrator combines Kate's journal entries and additional interviews with experts on zoology, biology, primatology, a forest service officer, and many others in order to provide the reader context about the nature of Bigfoot, or possibly the existence of these elusive creatures. We learn that for therapeutic reasons, Kate was asked by her psychotherapist to maintain a written record of her thoughts, feelings, and experiences while living in Greenloop. The initial entries describe her troubled relationship with her husband, Dan, her lifestyle, and the quirky upper class, in bold, neighbors of her small Greenloop community. Greenleaf is situated close to the dormant volcano called Mount Rainier. However, Mount Rainier erupts, causing the residents to take their survival into their own hands. They decide to shelter in place, stay put, and wait for rescuers to arrive, relying on the capabilities of their technological homes and rationing to carry them through the coming days. As the National Guard and local officials try to regain control of the Mount Rainier eruption area, including Seattle, the residents of Greenloop slowly realize how cut off from civilization and how truly unprepared they are. It is then that the wild animals, and worse, Bigfoot, appears. The journal entries, and therefore the book that we're reading, then become a record of the residents' battles against the mysterious Sasquatch. My sighting happened about six months ago. We're walking back from the little creek, and I kept hearing this rustling in the leaves. Then I had my dog with me, and she was acting really strange. And I looked behind me, and this is six and a half, seven foot tall creature covered in brownish black fur. And I looked, and probably about 30, 40 yards right there, it was just staring at me. And almost every time I go in the woods, I get a wood knock or I see it. 
let's talk about our stories surrounding Max Brooks and this book. So for myself, I have read all of his novels. Um, It's been a while, because it's been a while since he actually created, uh, released a novel. Um, He jumped back into doing, he did a bunch of like graphic novels as well. I know he was busy, like you said, and he's like lecturing and doing other things, but actually putting together a novel, it's been quite a few years. So I've read and owned the, the Zombie Survival Guide. I have and read World War Z. Excellent. It's been such a long time, but loved both of those books and I also met him at Fan Expo probably a decade ago and he is a super lovely man and I was so happy to revisit his work through his new novel De-Evolution. Oh my god you totally reminded me that yes I met him as well too. (laughs) It was all three of us together at a Fan Expo because I remember he like was such a nice guy and then like he gave me like one of his comic books and I was like oh cool but like I knew I knew of him because um I had a partner at the time who uh, was reading World War Z and they wanted me to read it as well and I tried to read it and couldn't get into it and this is because like zombies just aren't my thing so I remember when he gave that to me that comic book I was like Mm -hmm. oh cool I'm just excited that I met a really cool author Max Brooks but Yeah. yeah so that would be my story around this is that this is actually my first time reading a Max Brooks book because like I said World War Z, I was like, nah, zombies are not my thing, but I don't know. I think I may have to go back, go back and try reading that just because I loved this book and I loved how much research he puts into it and mm-hmm. it just made sense. So I was like, you know what? I need to go back and check that out, especially when doing research about him and mm-hmm. he talks about the global, our global pandemic right now. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, guys. I wrote a book kind of about this a while ago. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I find a lot of similarities between De-Evolution and World War Z. So if you loved De-Evolution, I would definitely highly recommend World War Z because it has a lot of the same aspects. It's written Mm -hmm. similarly. There's journal entries. There's like radio broadcasts. Obviously, they're like transcripted and it's a lot of research. It's way less about the zombies and it's about the people involved in the zombie, you know, global pandemic and how people are reacting and what's going on in different areas of the world and how different areas of the world are responding to the pandemic and the zombies and and stuff like that. So it is really great. And I really should revisit it because it is a very compelling read. Yeah, definitely. It's on, it's on my list to go and visit (laughs) this book. Good, good. Okay. So you loved the evolution. What did you love about it? All right. So like I realized when I finished this book that for our second book club, for Spencer's book club, we have chosen a book that has strong female fucking protagonists, and yeah, I loved yeah, it. Yeah. So yeah. I really liked our protagonist, Kate Holland. Mm-hmm. I could relate to her um, as someone who is, you know, therapeutically doing journaling and stuff like that. You see this change in this evol- or de-evolution in her in her mm-hmm. journal entries as she goes, but just... She was just such an interesting character that I could get into, and mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the character of Mostar. Mm-hmm. Um, she was really cool. So I was just like, cool, another like badass uh, centric women mm-hmm, in these mm-hmm. in these situations in these books that we read. I really enjoyed finding out the amount of research that he does in his books made everything make so much sense to me. Like this made this book so much more enjoyable because decisions that were being made felt pragmatic like the conversations mm-hmm. that he's having with people I'm like yeah that that all that she was having with people that the interviewer was having with people is really interesting so like I said I really liked it and the book was really engaging it's I just like I said I finished this book in one week because <laughs> I just couldn't put it down mm-hmm. from 
just reading it and understanding and like seeing the events as they play out remind me much of our early pandemic days mm-hmm. there were some moments of being like uh um there were moments of being really frustrated with people there's i was also there was moments where i was actually scared when we get into mm. like the second half of the book when like the cryptids yeah. start showing up and i was like oh it's been a while since the book got me like oh i'm not i'm very uncomfortable right now and don't want to look outside my window <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's not going to be groundhogs out there it's going to be sasquatch <laughs> uh but yeah i just i i and like you and earlier before we started the podcast you had grabbed the book and you said there's just so many good quotable lines and i'm like there is there's just so many like they're making a note of like a really good quote or of a really good line or just like a delivery of something yeah yeah great i'm really happy oh boy yeah it's i feel like it's 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 very well written you're right i didn't finish it in a week because i wanted to spread it out because if i read it immediately i would just probably forget a lot of the details but uh it's i would say it's a quick read it's a compelling read it's a very interesting read i'm kind of a sciencey biology nerd so mm. i like how there is so much science in it there is biology in it a lot of like scientific theories are in it but then we have this contrast of throwing in the mystery of Bigfoot at the same time. Yeah. Which is really, really interesting because we'll talk about Bigfoot a little bit later on in cryptozoology, but there's not a lot of science there. And I just loved kind of comparing and contrasting or at least paralleling those stories. Um, Yeah, it was pretty horrific at times, you know, having Bigfoot, yeah, ripping people's heads off and throwing them and showing them around. Like, you're not seeing that in any documentaries or movies. No. This is happening in this book. It's pretty brutal. It's, you know, this, yeah, I love, I love how he puts it together. I love the research and the journal entries and just getting down to the nitty gritty and it's the human experiences. And that's one Mm. of the things I loved about The Walking Dead. The comic series is because it was less about the zombies and it's more about the people and their struggles and how they're dealing with this this adversity and these like unprecedented times in their lives. You know, Um, the characters, the pacing, you know, the quotes from primatologists and talking about apes and how we can either, we can also refer that back to what's happening with the people in the book, how they're becoming less Less, civili- yeah. less civilized in quotations and then talking about Bigfoot in the same way. And yeah, all the one like the one liners, the zingers and the ending segments are so thoughtful and poignant. And I have so many quotes from the book to to bring up because they were just so interesting. Like they really just like stayed in my mind of mm-hmm. and there were so many of them. So I think to me that just shows like just incredible story writing. Yeah, exactly. And I really like the journal entry thing is I remember at times reading it and being like, okay, she's putting way too many details in a journal entry for a, a psychotherapist or something like that. Like I wouldn't even write that much in my journal. But then I started thinking about how the journal really, the journal entries really show this like de-evolution, how she yeah. goes from like really showing us like the minor details of her day-to-day life and annoyances to like and- the very end being like, I lost my man. And it gets very, like, to the point, here's a guide for survival, like, it's just, like, and then you're, like, okay, like, that's where her cognitive brain has gone, and I, so I end up really, I ended up really yeah. liking that. Cool. Um, do you have any dislikes? My only dislike of this book, um, at the end of the day, is the ending. I was not satisfied with how it ended. Mm, okay. That was, but, like, like, in a sense of, like, like, in the sense that they show up and they, like, I don't want to, like, spoilers, everyone, like, what they show up um, to the camp and they see the remains of this war zone between the, mm-hmm. the survivors and the cryptids, but then Katie's gone. 
And yeah. that just didn't sit well with me. So I was like, well, why didn't she just, if she essentially protect her area, why didn't she just stay until they were, she was rescued, especially with a child? So mm-hmm. when someone made very the, ambiguous. Yep. Yeah. So when yeah. they made the idea, I'm like, maybe she's out there fighting, like hunting Bigfoot. So I was like, really? I don't think so. She's all about survival. <laughs> yeah. They left it up to the reader to yeah. think about. So you don't get closure. Yeah. I could see that being a bit frustrating. How about yourself? I would say, I mean... It's not even really a dislike, but, like, I would have been fine if this was longer. Like, I know we need to choose books that are about, like, 300 pages so we can read it within a month. You know what I mean? So we do have, like, page limits for Spencer's Book Club. So side note, folks, if you're recommending books, there has to be a page limit because it has to be something you have to be... be able to read within three to four weeks, right? Yeah. But I would have been fine if this was much longer. I would be would have been fine with that. Absolutely. Like I want more more of the science. Have them have to survive a little bit longer. Cause what? Like in the end, it's like maybe two weeks or something. It's not yeah. it's not a very long period of time. I mean, like it feels like when you're in it that they're doing this for months and months, but they're really not. So I would have I would have loved more. I'd love more. I love that. I just, especially when you're like, the movie, it was two hours long. Did it need to be two hours long? And then your book's like, I wanted the book longer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It. I'm fine with a longer book if you're good. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I know. Um, and I'll discuss this in more depth later when it's relevant. But the portrayal of vegans in this book, I was not super oh. impressed by. <laughs> yeah. But overall, I really, really enjoyed this book from beginning to end. And I'm really glad glad that we mutually agreed upon it. Same here. Do you have any uh, favorite scenes or moments or something you want to read from the book? The ending of chapter eight was when I was like, damn, I'm into this book. Yeah. Well, I was okay. in, I, I was into it for like ages, but it was more of this. I'll read this last paragraph. So I spotted the first one, the first clear footprint. It was next to the skull fragment. So deep it pressed right through the ash into the soft earth. It couldn't be a wolf or another puma. The shape was all wrong. Maybe a bear? I don't know. I've never seen a bear track, so maybe there's a simple answer. But the print looked almost like shoeless person right down to the five toes. But it couldn't have been. Dan took off his hiking boot. He wears a size 11. He took off his socks as well and placed his bare foot right next to the print. The toes matched the overall shape, but the size? That's impossible. It must have been a trick of the ash or maybe the way it was planted. Nothing could have such a big foot. That was like, okay, this... This is interesting. I'm really getting into this. And then, of course, the scenes later on with uh, Kate, um, when she jumps in front of the puma, not realizing that she did. I really like that moment, um, especially mm-hmm. when Mostar like, po- points it out and be like, did you realize that you jumped in front of that puma without even thinking? And she's like, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah, to protect a child, no less. So yep, it's, yep. yeah, no, there's a lot of great, great moments and scenes. I liked that one, too. I mean, they... This book definitely hits on a lot of like key Bigfoot isms and key Bigfoot quote pieces of evidence um, that cryptozoologists and at least Bigfoot hunters have have put out there. Yeah, like the the rocks and the howling and some knocking and footprints and stuff like that. So I mean, I feel like this also, if you're a Bigfoot fan, you'll enjoy a lot of a lot of this book. So I would say I'm going to read the, the ending of chapter six which is essentially our first Sasquatch sighting. I should say now that my eyes were already dry from lack of sleep and the little particles of ash didn't help. That was why I couldn't be sure how big the boulder was or how far away. I remember thinking that it must have rolled down there within the last few hours. How else could Tony have gotten around to see it that far from the bridge was actually gone? 
I could even see the tire marks, four of them to mark the two directions. I remember feeling a sense of finality. That bridge or no bridge, we couldn't drive out now with that giant rock in the way. Then I saw the rock move. It shifted in place, grew, then disappeared behind the trees. I also thought I saw it change shape, lengthen, narrow, even spread out limbs like a tree. Arms? I rubbed my eyes, blinked hard. When I looked around again, the road was clear. The boulder was definitely gone. Then, as the wind shifted in my direction, I smelled it. Eggs and garbage. I didn't consciously consider what to do next. No internal debate. This was reflex. I turned and started walking back. My eyes kept scanning back and forth in a shallow arc, like they teach you on the first day of driver's school. I tried to keep my pace steady, my breathing constant. I tried not to dwell on what I'd seen. An animal, a deer, maybe that boulder was just a speck in my eye. But the smell was getting stronger, and I couldn't keep from speeding up. I thought I saw something move off to my right, a sudden space opening between two trees. I quickened again. Silly, irrational, tired. Information overload from the news mixed with memory flashes of the bloody butchered rabbit. A light trot at first, long controlled breaths, that feeling, the back of my neck being watched. My trot became a jog, my breath thundering in my ears. I could not have imagined the howl. I definitely heard it just like the other day, deep rising pitch echoing off the trees. Lightning kicked up from my stomach. I ran, sprinting, gasping, the world shaking in front of me and fell, just like one of those stupid cheesy horror flicks when the dumb blonde eats it just before the knife-wielding psycho gets her. At least I had the presence of mind to close my eyes, hold my breath, but after face-planting in the ash, I couldn't help but inhale. Coughing, choking, eyes blurry and stinging, I tore forward. Don't turn, I remember that clearly, shouting in my brain, don't turn, don't blink, go, 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 thighs burning, lungs. I ran until I saw the roofs peeking just above the driveway rise. The endorphins hit. Made it. Home. Safe. Dan. He was coming toward me. Most are behind him. Shocked expressions, both of them. Utter surprise. I must have looked ridiculous, covered in sweat and ash, rasping and wheezing. I still feel ridiculous. Falling into Dan's arms and dry heaving on his chest. It was a few minutes before I got wind back to explain where I'd been. I even admitted that I thought an animal might have been chasing me. I didn't say what it was. No details. It couldn't have been that large, given how big the trees were. It probably didn't exist at all. But the smell, could I have imagined that? Mozart's face with this mix of bewilderment and concern? I'm sorry, I'm so fried. Dan keeps telling me to go to bed, but I want to get this all down first. Sorry if my words were getting fuzzy. That look on Mozart's face. I don't pretend to know what it was or why. When Dan was helping me home, she kept her eyes on the woods. Yeah, that is a good scene. Seriously, look how big it is. I don't think it is a human. I think it's a Sasquatch. It was a bluebird January morning here in the foothills of northeast Provo when a group of guys saw a figure on the mountain that looked like something they've never seen before. You can't just see something that's maybe a once-in-a-century discovery and go do your nine-to-five job. you got to go look for fur or footprints or some kind of evidence. And the camera was rolling as Austin took to the mountain with a buddy on a search for the elusive Bigfoot. So I'm seeing something that is not deer tracks anymore. We're trying to determine what it, what, what it is. Their findings were inconclusive. Was it a bear? Maybe. That's plausible. Was it a person? Also plausible. Was it something else? 
I think that's also plausible. Who knows? On the other hand, I spoke to a curator from the Natural History Museum of Utah who says not only is that figure in the video not Sasquatch, but it's safe to say that Sasquatch is not something that would even exist. What's the likelihood that there are big animals that have gone undetected by scientists and by trained observers? Dr. Eric Rickhart has spent much of his career exploring places people have never gone before in search of new species. So far, no Bigfoot or anything like it. There are lots of undiscovered things, particularly in the natural world. But they don't take the form of giant apes running around in largely settled areas of the world. So what do you believe? I'm really hoping I get to go look again. Maybe there's something out there to find right here in Utah, even in Provo. So let's jump into talking about Bigfoot, cryptozoology. Why do people believe in Bigfoot? Why are we going to talk about Bigfoot? Why is this important? Why do Jess and I enjoy cryptozoology? Well, Jess is going to start us off. (laughs) Do I enjoy cryptozoology? I don't know. So (laughs) cryptozoology is the pseudoscience and subculture that searches for and studies the unknown, legendary, and extinct animals whose present existence is disputed and unsubstantiated. Very unsubstantiated. Yes. (laughs) Often these creatures are known as cryptids, which is a term that was coined in 1983 by cryptozoologist J.E. Wall in the summer issue of International Society of Cryptozoology instead of using the misleading term monster, but Mm. to use cryptid to mean living thing having the quality to be hidden and unknown. Mm. So the study of cryptozoology actually was originally founded in the 1950s by zoologists Bernard Havamans and Ivan T. Sanderson, who both published books on the unknown and hidden creatures. It does not follow a scientific method. It is neither a branch of zoology or folklore studies. It is made up. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's kind of like a pseudo-scientific extension of this old belief in monsters and folklore and stuff like that. So they give them this really scientific, important sounding name of cryptids. But this isn't really a thing. There's a lot of hobbyists that get involved mm-hmm. with cryptozoology. There are, of course, a handful of actual scientists with a science background, but very few cryptozoologists actually have formal science training and formal science education. You know, cryptozoology kind of gets lumped into other pseudosciences like ghost hunting and ufology. And, you know, sometimes podcasters can be investigators. And, you know, early pandemic, Jess had this really great idea of starting this Sunday night kind of ritual, our own Are You the Afraid of the Dark, where we initially had a bunch of people get together and we'll tell spooky stories, right? Like creepy pastas, maybe show creepy uh, videos, videos and stuff. Yeah. And we're still doing this after two years later. But often documentaries about aliens, other cryptids, Bigfoot, maybe blending of the two is Bigfoot an alien. So- oh, God. <laughs> So we do. I mean, we've we've jumped into this multiple times over the last two years. So I felt, you know, this is very just perfect to be touching on now. And some of the things that get really annoying is, well, generally speaking, like let's say ghost hunters, they have way more technology. Like I feel like ghost hunters really, really, really firmly believe or at least want to show some kind of proof. That's why they yeah. have an incredible amount of different types of technology. And Jess is you're a big fan of I ghost am. hunting I, series, I, right? <laughs> I do, because often in ghost hunting series, you get 
like some form of video or audio or photographic evidence or yeah. something to and my with. thing right and are <laughs> yeah. there some they try to engage with scientific communities to kind of figure out things about like energy and thermodynamics and stuff like yeah. that whereas cryptozoology often rejects mainstream science and they're often very hostile to anyone who tries to bring any kind of scientific or formal scientific knowledge to the study of cryptozoology and a lot of stuff with them is that they have no accepted or uniform method of pursuing cryptids whereas yeah. like i find yeah. ufologists and like people who are interested in paranormal studies have like current like they have methods so they all yeah, follow to something. figure out yeah whereas like cryptozoologists are often just hunters who are going out using motion center sensor cameras and night vision and recording your devices never camera there's never a camera in sight there's so <laughs> few cameras especially now because there's still people out there hunting quote hunting and searching for bigfoot with no cameras which is just very bizarre to me and there's a lot of cryptozoologists that like to say that they have irrefutable evidence only to later be revealed to be hoaxes and that's really too bad man i would love to believe that chupacabra is real bigfoot is real but the amount of, quote, evidence out there is not very compelling. And there's more for aliens, UFOs, and ghosts, actually. And that's weird for even me to say, because I'm a big skeptic. But mm -hmm. this was a quote in some of our research that I thought was infuriating, astounding, but also not super surprising. But slightly over 40% of Americans believe in UFOs, okay? This is way higher than those Americans who believe that global warming is real, that life evolved through natural selection, or that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. America, are you okay? From this uh, book, you're not. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that leads us into Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Sasquatch is derived from a First Nations word in the southwest of British Columbia, which means wild man or hairy man. And one of the first sightings of Bigfoot was in 1884 by a British colonist newspaper in Victoria that published an account of a gorilla type creature that was captured in the area. And then from there, John Green, a book author, he compiled a list of 1,340 sightings in the 19th and 20th century alone of sightings of Bigfoot or a gorilla-like creature in the woods. And then that leads us to the 1950s. So that's been like 60 years truly of Bigfoot. And that's when our first like real, like the footprints started. Yeah. Um, and really, what was it? 1967. I'm going to jump forward to 1967 because, you know, when it comes to Bigfoot, this is like, we'd be remiss not to mention yeah. the Patterson-Gimlin film, right? Where there's a few seconds of a hairy creature walking on two legs by Bluff Creek. And Bluff Creek was the area where they saw the footprints, quote, footprints for the very first time. So, coincidence or not, but that is the most famous and most contested piece of Bigfoot, quote, evidence to this day. But it's infamous. Even if you don't know that much about Bigfoot, cryptozoology, you know this, the, the Patterson-Gimlin film. It's infamous. Yeah, and like you know of Bluff Creek, where in 1958, Ray Wallace had found a foot of Bigfoot, and it was a casting, which in 2002 was later to reveal to be a hoax, which yep. then shadows over the 1967 film by Roger Sir Patterson and Bob Gimlin, which is the shooting of Bigfoot, as Kelly was saying. So, yeah, so from the 1950s, like, Bigfoot gained this huge life and became really popular, and there's been, like, more than... 
10,000 eyewitness accounts in the U.S. alone describing an 8 to 10 foot tall humanoid ape-like creature covered in hair walking around in the woods. But problem is a lot of these sightings from people come from human memory, which is often not reliable because people often misinterpret what they see or they get confused. Or as Kelly was reading earlier, if you're afraid, you're not thinking properly. So your mind is not cognitively taking in the sight that you're seeing. So often when people come back to relay accounts of this creature that they've seen, it's very vague and it's, they're not, you know, they're not sure what they're saying. And you're like, well, it could have been a bear. It could have been anything. You could just made it up. Mm -hmm. And tales of these giant apes do like they lurk throughout the world, really Europe, Asia. So in the Himalayas, they have the abominable snowman or the Yeti. I'm using a Yeti microphone (laughs) in Australia. The Bigfoot's known as the Yowie man. So that is. And of course, you know, you mentioned Native Americans. They have stories and folklore about these ape-like men, these ape-like creatures. Um, So Bigfoot advocates think that the primate is the offspring from an ape that came originally from Asia that wandered over to North America during the Ice Age. They believe that there are at least 2,000 ape men walking upright in North America's woods today. An adult male is said to be at least eight feet tall, weighing 800 pounds, and have feet twice the size of the humans. The creatures are described as shy and nocturnal and their diets consist mostly of berries and fruit. And often when people say that they have seen Bigfoot, they often claim that they have been identified through shrieks, howls and growls in the woods, screams of vocalizations, uh, wood knocking is very common, the throwing of rocks, and often experts can't identify the animal in the strange recordings that are often taken. This is seen as an example in the 2019 YouTube video of mysterious howls and screams in northwestern Ontario, Canada that went viral. Um, We saw this video, Kelly. I think pretty sure Brandon showed it to us. (laughs) Spooky stories. Wins out yet again. It's actually very educational. (laughs) Um, The gentleman, Jolanta Koliski, was uh, was the Ontario's Minister of Resource and Forestry. When he saw the video, his media relations officer said, Our biologists say it could be a larger mammal, for example, a wolf. But because it's a considerable distance from the recorder, there's no way to know for sure. But this is a super popular video of evidence of Bigfoot in northern Ontario. Northwestern Ontario. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, even there's something called the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization or www.bfro.net. And they keep track of all Bigfoot, quote, sightings and anything related to Bigfoot. In Canada, the last I I saw on that website, the the most recent sighting or at least documented through the website or that they looked into is, I believe is New Brunswick in 2021. So, hey, there's potential for... Um, some Sasquatch to be roaming the woods of, you know, our boreal forests here in Canada, which is, mm-hmm. you know, that's interesting. You know, and coming back to talking about like Bigfoot hunters, cryptozoologists, how has the evidence not gotten any better after 60 years of like fascination well, at least North American or American fascination with this elusive creature. How has the evidence not gotten any better despite the exponential increase in the quantity and quality of our cameras? Phones, I like pretty much everyone has a cell phone these days, like almost every person, right? In North Mm -hmm. America anyways. So why? Why is there not better evidence? What is going on here? And that's what makes me super skeptical when it comes to whether or not Bigfoot is 
real. What do you think, Jess? What do you say I, to that? I agree with you. I, I am. <laughs> it's funny because like you could talk to me about ghosts. You could talk to yeah. me about UFOs. Yeah. I'm like, okay, like I could, I could suspend my disbelief and believe. Yeah. But with Bigfoot, I have a really hard time suspending my disbelief because I'm just like, how is there no hard evidence? Yeah. How is it that yeah. if because often um, a lot of cryptozoologists and Bigfoot hunters and uh, Bigfoot conservationists, because apparently there's a whole different subculture within the subculture of Bigfoot, that they say is that because no one will take them seriously because any hard evidence like Bigfoot hair, feces, skin scrapings, blood, they don't receive any scientific study or documentation. It's either lost or unattainable. Um, and any evidence has to go through rigorous study before it can be seen as ordinary, right? But they don't believe in scientific methods. And mm-hmm. all their arguments off the time is that just because there is no evidence doesn't mean that Bigfoot doesn't exist. There's still creatures, and I hear this often, there are creatures hiding within the depths of the world that we don't know. And Kelly, you've brought this up before when we've watched like Bigfoot documentaries <laughs> and talking about Bigfoot. But like, how is it possible that a single creature like Bigfoot or more of them as a viable population not be discovered, right? Like, it would be impossible for them to avoid inbreeding and have low genetic diversity or face extinction. They should be extinct, technically, based upon 65 years of research. Um, how is it yeah. that we haven't seen one? Why hasn't one been killed? There's no bodies. There's no. St- there's just stories of bones. And often, too, a lot of evidence is covered by hoaxes. Mm-hmm. This complicates the Bigfoot problem, as you know, because often people come out later on and it's, it's fake. It's, it was a hoax. And it's just people making footprints or taking pictures of their friends in ape costumes. Yeah. And, you know, and this is kind of a fascinating idea that, uh, you know, thinking about all of this and the research that we did, this idea of like human curiosity, maybe this Mm. like this like Bigfoot hunting cryptozoology is just a return to earlier times, you know, where we didn't have all this fancy technology because again, they don't, we don't see a lot of it. There's tons of documentaries out there, folks, and there's not a lot of, um, yeah, like tech that they bring with them. It's just pure curiosity and spirit. And you know what? And that's great. And that's fine. But you know, what's going on here? I obviously you can tell folks I'm I'm very skeptical about the presence of, of Bigfoot, but I'm not gonna crush somebody's spirit if they want yeah. to just like spend their hobbies going to look for Bigfoot, just camping out in the woods for hours and days at a time just to maybe catch a glimpse with your own human eyes of if Bigfoot is real or not. And I feel like this is a bit of a concept that we'll get into later, but as these so-called wild men, they perhaps hold a mirror up to our own species and they come kind of humans and Sasquatch or Bigfoot, big feats, question mark, <laughs> kind of go head to head in de-evolution. But what would Homo sapiens be like if civilization had not been removed from its nature. There's like this cultural fascination with this untamed beast, our uncivilized people. Maybe there are ancestors. It's like humans versus animals, man versus beast. It's like eternal curiosity, this eternal fascination, eternal struggle of us invading natural spaces and trying to maybe leave the environment and people alone. It's its a big theme in the book, I feel like. It is a big theme in the book. And one of the things when it comes to Bigfoot, and I won't go into more details about it because honestly, the Faculty of Horror did a really great podcast episode on mm-hmm. Bigfoot, the concept of colonialism, but also just the, this idea of the frontier spirit that when you look at kind of the demographs of a lot of Bigfoot 
followers or believers or hunters, there are a specific demographic of individuals. And often these people really believe in tracking and hunting Bigfoot as like tapping into the frontier spirit. And there are a lot of appropriation of Native American traditions. Like it's like ultimately comes down to that. It just Bigfoot shows the American trait of gullibility and this hunger for attention because... Mm-hmm. Often the documentaries that come out of Big Bo- about Bigfoot, they're showing no evidence, but it's also showing more attention to a certain type of ideology and idea about, well, if we are under threat, we need to take care of the situation and it'd be a solution, which also be, kind of comes up in our book because we have two ideas when it comes to these cryptids when they're discovered. You have half of the community wanting to protect Bigfoot and just be like, you know, we just, you know, they're friends, we'll leave them alone, clearly yeah. ignoring the signs that there is actually a fight for resources that are happening right now and Bigfoot, the big feet, the clan that are coming in are fighting for resources because they're looking to survive, right? And we have Mostar, Katie, and Dan who are like, we understand that these creatures exist, but we need to figure out our own survival. So, and I feel like yeah. that's big in the in the community of cryptozoology is just like, well, do we leave them be and let them exist or do we hunt them down to prove that they exist and then quarantine them protect to protect ourselves as humans right because at mm-hmm. the end of the day humans mm-hmm. are always thinking about themselves regardless mm-hmm. of what they do and this is like a big theme in de-evolution of this concept of us going into places that we necessarily should not be or messing in things that don't really belong to us they don't delve this much into it but i pulled just a quote from the book that's relevant here is early on in the book again they don't delve too much into it later mm-hmm. on but yvette is like there's Yvette and Tony who really started all of this off. They're they're the vegans. They're like into yoga. They're really into like you can tell they're really a bit more into spiritualism and stuff like that. But Yvette brings up Oma, guardian of the wilderness. Oma was a spirit of the first people, a gen- gentle giant that arrogant Eurocentric white men have perverted into the name Bigfoot. You know they don't delve into that. That could be like it's a whole separate conversation. But absolutely, you're totally right turning this natural being into Bigfoot, something to exploit and to be fascinated about and hunt down. Because, yes, in one of the many documentaries, I yes, I learned about this, like, subculture of the subculture of it, of, like, a bunch of these, well, white men coming in, fully camouflaged, like, we need to actually kill Bigfoot so we can prove that they exist. And it's just like this kind of military militia kind of mentality yep. that I was not a fan of. Those are the men that I watched at Parliament Hill for a month in Ottawa yep. when they, for their freedom convoy. Yep. That's what scares me about that. Yeah, because that's, you know, I don't like to say slippery slope, but, you know, it, it starts somewhere and it's a part of something. And yeah. so, yeah. I mean, generally speaking, the community at Green Loop, they're not aware of Bigfoot or Sasquatch. They don't believe in it. But I feel like most are like I read in that section of the book, like maybe she doesn't know exactly that Bigfoot exists, but she knows that there's not some there's something not right in the woods. But we know that she has like 1990s Balkan War, Yugoslav War experience that she survived Mm -hmm. from. But she sees the danger for what it is. We don't belong in these woods. We don't belong in the natural world. And I generally agree with her on that. I totally agree with you because in the face of survival, 
Mostar is the one who has like the most experience in this novel. And I liked because, like you said, she doesn't necessarily indicate that it could be Bigfoot. It could be anything in the woods that have decided yeah. to come in yeah. and is fighting for resources. And that's what Mostar is all about. Like, and you, that's we war. won't go into too much depth about this in this podcast episode because there's just so many different themes. We see the experience of Mostar and your experience of war and the fighting for survival and resources and how sometimes when people are coming for you, you need to be prepared to take care and protect yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what, you know, the epic ending of the book gets to you. Like I said, it's not a very long period of time that these people are isolated and stranded out in this little community. It's only about two weeks. And so it comes down to the civilized versus the savage, which is supposed to be humans versus animals or humans versus uh, the Sasquatch or Bigfoot. What will we do in the face of survival? We see a variety of different people doing a variety of different things or not doing anything at all. But it's called de-evolution for reasons, you know, talking about humans devolving, coming down to our base primal, quote, instincts like animals to protect ourselves and survive. And same with Sasquatch. We didn't know they existed, but when disaster strikes and they need to survive, they're fighting for their own families and their children and their kin. What are we going to do? Been hunting in Kasachi. And I seen a head coming through the woods. And I was going, oh, look at there's somebody walking through the woods without an orange hat on. So I put my scope on it and I was like, I've never seen camouflage like that. I was like, well, that's not camouflage. That's hair. So I put my gun down and I sat there for a minute and I was like, eh, whatever, I'm gonna shoot it. Turn my scope up and I put it on there. And I was like, no, I'm not shooting it. I don't know what it is. So de-evolution actually is a whole political concept, which is not necessarily what we're going to get into. But I thought that that was really interesting because I was not aware of this. But essentially, de-evolution is defined as the delegation of power, especially by a central government, to local or regional administration. So in the novel, we can kind of see this in regards to the natural world. There's these power dynamics between our Bigfoot clan and the residents of Green Loop. And really, it comes down to like what it means to be, quote, civilized or untamed yeah. or savages. There's definitely a negative connotation when it comes to saying words of savages or savagery. But that's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah, like it comes down to people who are considered normal and can resort to savage behavior when placed in dangerous and desperate situations. So as Kelly and I were doing our research into this idea of what humans would do to survive when they're in uh, extreme situations or just like our own moral code. And this leads us into the idea of human nature, the philosophy of human nature. So this brings us to both Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who are considered contractualists, which is the belief that morals come about our via our agreements and our contracts. But they both disagree on the notion of human nature and how that impacts how civilized are and how we see ourselves. So Hobbes, he sees humans as naturally violent and we have been civilized by society and that is through a government and through laws that human aggression can be tamed. Because the notions of human nature are chaotic. If men are all born the same, that we are, and we are in a natural state of freedom, eventually we're going to start fighting each other for hierarchy. So these men are guided by their wills, and which eventually will come to conflict, which will always be internal, and that negative freedom leads to war, which brings about the emergence of the state. And the state is born out of the contract when man's freedom is partially rejected. 
that's philosophy for you. <laughs> Whereas his counterpart, Rousseau, and the evolutionary biologists um, that follow him, view humans as naturally good and can only be corrupted by society that through patriarchal and settler ideology combined with the development of lethal technology can cause humans to become aggressive, that we are naturally born good and that is society that has made us sheep and that has corrupted us. And he has actually also been known as the father of the revolutionary mentality, fighting against the knowledge that has corrupted us and has made us all unequal at the end of the day. That's all very interesting. And like society is, I don't think it's necessarily tamed us. Our savagery comes out in a variety of terrible different ways. Hello, Ukraine war. And it's a aggressive dog at the end of a leash. And eventually that leash will break. And that brings us, you know, around the idea of, yes, civilized versus savage. Who or what are the animals here? Mm. Definitely in this story. And, you know, a classic other example that I think we all read about in school is Lord of the Flies. That immediately came to mind when I was uh, reading this book. But what will people do when they're put into a desperate situation? Are they going to see themselves? Are they going to dramatically turn into somebody else? Which pathway are you going to choose? Are you going to go the savage way? Are you going to go the, quote, civilized way of, you know what, let's just leave them alone that's also a bit of denial, but, you know, let's leave these, uh, the the big feet, the big feats uh, alone. But who knows, like, which way is better? We kind of see it in the book, right? So what is it that makes us either fight or flight? How do we survive disastrous situations? And it kind of comes down to a lot of, like, anatomy, physiology. What was interesting that there's research that shows that people who live in dangerous locations... They're in a danger, potentially very dangerous location, which we see it becomes a dangerous location. People who live in dangerous locations, so a surprising lack of knowledge of the risks associated with their natural environment. For example, residents living near Mount St. Helens, when surveyed during some volcanic activity, did not understand the risks associated with an actual volcanic eruption. They would not be prepared if the volcano erupted. These people were not prepared when Mount Rainier erupted. Absolutely not. And I think and you see a lot of it of people turning to denial because that can be very protective and keep you safe and reduce anxiety. Yeah, exactly. And we saw that in the novel right away, like Green Loops as a eco-village, sustainable eco-village, was not prepared for that disaster. Even though they say they were, everything they used to prepare for the disaster breaks down. And their their fancy technology and stuff like that is no longer usable for what they need. And what's really interesting is that the moment you start seeing things break down the day of the disaster, Mostar, who's been who's someone who's been through an actual natural disasters and war, knows 100% what she needs to do to survive, figure things out but like kelly said people going everyone in the community started going into denial and started trying to continue just living their normal lives to just continue to reduce anxiety but also reassure themselves that they're not in any real danger and it's often that happens a lot through the book where they talk, they're like we're not in any real danger we'll just wait for someone to come for us well you know but they don't really they will come for us yes. the big yes. umbrella of they guess yeah. what folks you have to save yourself. You cannot wait for anyone else to save you. But that's a big thing. They're like, somebody will find us. Somebody will save us. Absolutely not. And that is like a flip in the switch in your brain. So there's the fight or flight response, which is pretty self-explanatory, but extreme duress, extreme stress during times like this Mm -hmm. can lead to memory reduction, cognitive dysfunction, you can forget your own address if you're under in like an extreme situation. 911, where do you live? 
I have no idea. Yeah. Absolutely. Stress, fatigue, lack of food, lack of sleep, the reduced amount of glucose actually getting to your brain is going to reduce your processing time. So your ability to survive a long-term disaster like what happened in Green Loop is going to depend on your own ability to cope, your motivation to cope and to adapt into potentially hostile environments. Rescue was not forthcoming. They can sit and think about it all they want, but you know, yes, you had Mostar for sure being like, no, we have to actually protect and save ourselves. We cannot wait for they. We can't wait for the government to come help us. Hello, pandemic as well. We can't wait for the government to help us. We need to act now. Let's make our weapons. Let's ration our food immediately because, hey, this could be the long haul. Mm -hmm. They chose an isolated place for a reason, right? So everybody, and there's like this really horrifying scene later on when you have the people that created Green Loop, Tony and Yvette. Oh, yeah. Ice absolutely in denial. They isolated themselves for this whole time, starving to death, living in squalor, not asking for help, not even talking to anybody. Guilt, pressure, stress. It just, it can, it can really mess you up and it really depends. And you see so many different, different types of characters res, uh, responding in different ways in this. And I loved that. No one person responded the exact same way. And I was really, really, that was really great to see. Yeah, I agree with you because especially in this situation, they weren't no, they didn't know how long they were going to be in that situation. Like Kelly said, it was only a short period of time based upon the the book and the narrative and stuff like that. But they were also planning to be there for winter months and stuff like yeah. that. And it's interesting because for a long for long term survival in those extreme situations, it is all based upon the ability to have the person's ability to survive a long term disaster is dependent on sustaining motivation to cope and adapt to new and often hostile environments. So earlier in this book, Kate's telling us about this beautiful, idyllic scenery, this walk she's going on, the berries, the birds, the sounds. Disaster strikes. It is no longer a welcoming environment anymore, and they have to change their mindset. It's no longer like, oh, we can go for a leisurely walk in the woods. It's like, no, we're going for a walk in the woods to find food and survival, but at the same time, too, don't expend too much energy or calories because you're going to need that mm-hmm. for longer periods of time as you go yeah. through it. And, and that has so much stress upon the brain and upon the cognitive learning and the spatial learning the memory for us to mm-hmm. be able to cope in those disastrous situations. So this often leads to behavioral abnormalities. Yeah. People will do various things in the way in in for means of survival. And like Kelly said, Yvette and Tony completely broke down and became completely yeah. despondent independent. But Katie and Dan, they went from these like unsure about their lives. Dan, her partner, was just like, you know, a loaf on the couch all the time, to being all of a sudden one of the main people to help this community survive. And they completely yeah. changed to their environment. You see yeah. that huge difference. I like Dan a lot because he, yeah, he lacked like any motivation in his life and his career and whatever. They're, his and Kate's relationship is like totally terrible and just stagnating. And he finds a sense of purpose. And I kind of love that for him because, yeah. I, yeah, he's a creative type, right? So him coming down to being the person who becomes the handyman, he's very excited about this. New challenges. He's like a key member of this community now. And who, he didn't, I mean, obviously nobody knew this was going to happen, but I really like his arc in, in the yes. book. It was really great. I also like, I love Kate. She was really fascinating. She's our protagonist and she was really great. What's interesting about Kate, it really takes only a week and a half before she wishes a man to be dead. And this is a, a quote that she says, I need to do something to make up for what I thought about Reinhardt. That's not me. Won't be. A quick knack now. Set my phone alarm for setup. At least still good for something. So am I. 
Who thinks like that? Who am I? Who are you in the face of survival? Who will you become? Mozart really starts as like this immediate hero. She dies. Kate is already ready to be standing up and like she was like a second in line kind of commander. She becomes the hero. She becomes a force needed to fight back and protect the community. And it's such an inspiring story that she goes through. And it's great because you see that Mostar is could see that potential in Katie yeah, and is yeah, like absolutely. training her from the moment because Mostar knows that she may not survive. She's been through this, yeah, may, yeah. probably more than once. So she knows she knows the people who are going to get in line and the people who are going to fall apart. That's why, like, throughout the majority of the book, when you don't hear about Yvette and Tony, you're like wondering, like, why aren't they checking in on them? Or like, Mostar is like, no, they're gone. Like, they are literally yeah, like, there's no out. point. They've checked out. We need to take care of ourselves. Yeah. And that I really liked a lot because like there was his mentorship between Mostar and Katie, especially when yeah. Katie first met Mostar. She's like, she's just some weirdo in the woods and she's really pushy. But at yeah. the end, they're, her and Dan are both really impacted by Mostar's death, more yeah. impacted than anyone else because she was kind of like that big leader of the group that helped them. So I'm going to bring up the veganism aspect of it mm. before we move on because it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I understand. I know these vegans. I, mm-hmm. I know yeah. them, but it was frustrating. There's other aspects in the book too, but... Vegans in survival mode. There's aspects where some of the community members are talking about using bear spray to like mace the the pumas, the sasquatch or anything like that that would upset or harm animals. And they're just like, no, that's so cruel. Like, why? Why would you do that? Why do you want to mace them? Just leave them alone. They're the leave them alone. Right. They're just trying to eat. Leave those little animals alone. And you're like, well, folks, you are in a you're in survival mode here. And They just made the vegans come off as like really out of touch with reality. Again, I know these vegans. I know those people, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But what I really, because like vegans can be assholes. Absolutely. Vegans also can be rapists. I know these people like they're not good. They're not inherently a better person because they're vegan, but just how they kind of just like really broke down and didn't really like join the rest of the group immediately in this like community kind of situation was upsetting. But I did enjoy the fact that they brought up the hypocrisy of people in this. And it was came down to when Mostar went and killed a rabbit and killed a rabbit, started skinning it. And Kate's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Also, portion of the uh, definitely a big theme in this book are our city dwellers coming into nature right yes. which we'll talk about but mm-hmm. people living in this metropolis ottawa toronto these big cities like the hypocrisy of modern people um so a, a quote from kate is i know it's hypocritical i eat fish and chicken i wear leather and silk i enjoy all the benefits of killing without ever having to do it myself i know all of this but i just can't i can't see death so people will pay other people to slaughter animals because they're more comfortable if they don't actually get involved or see any of it happening and they get their mm-hmm. unnamed, un, like just freshly whatever, pa- freshly packaged, we'll call it something different. We're going to call it beef and not cow where it actually comes from. We're, we're going to call it bacon and not pig because that's where it comes from. So we like totally separate ourselves from the natural world in order for it to be comfortable for us. But I think like you hit on the big thing though with that, how the vegans are portrayed and stuff like that, is that bigger overarching narrative of just how out of touch these 
rich upper class yuppies vegans white veganism actually so shown in like the booths and Yvette and Tony like they're like these upstart millionaires you know with throwing their money and they're like we're all like healthy living and good lifestyle and stuff like that but they are so out of touch with reality and with the reality of things so when they come into this natural disaster they just have no means or no compasses of survival and that kind of gets into this you know idea of one of the things I really liked about this book and how they got into was this whole idea of the environmentalism of the eco-villages and this green environmentalism that is really part of the rich white upper class that is not accessible for everyone. Yeah, so they live in an essentially an eco-village, and eco-villages are actually a thing. The modern eco-village has its roots in the communes, which first popped up in the 1960s and 70s. There's a bunch of people with common goals and common belief systems. They want to live more sustainably. They want to live in harmony with their environment, with nature, but also help to protect nature and their environment. And that's what Green Loop's idea was. Heavily too reliant upon technology to run, because that's the first thing that in any disaster, in any pandemic, in any situation that you read or watch or see, technology, communications from there are the first things to break down, folks. You cannot rely on it. And it again, it showed how deeply unprepared these people were. One example of an eco-village, if folks don't know, and I didn't really know what these were, had like a general idea of like, I'm sure vegans yeah. live somewhere and do things. But the Dancing Rabbit Eco-Village. So this one was started in 1997 with the purchase of 208 acres of land in northeastern Missouri. And it's grown into a group of neighbors dedicated to building a place where people respect the environment and work to make their community a better place. Thumbs up great idea. They grow a lot of their own food and often prepare big meals together. Homes built at Dancing Rabbit must follow sustainability guidelines concerning the house design, building materials, and techniques used while residents get around off the farm using one of the cars from their private car share service, which is all powered by biodiesel. So the big philosophy of Green Loops, which is an eco-village, as we see in this book, is that people are the problem and nature is your friend. That we're all seeking to live in harmony with the environment, as well as develop the land as an, with an eye of protection and conservation of the vital natural systems. But with these eco-villages, there comes a lot of inherent problems that we did in our research. And one of them is that, and Kelly's already pointed out, that economically they're dependent on the outside world and all the surrounding community for resources. So like food and trade, they have to come into the community. And in Green Loops, they come in via drones and if they or a van. And if they can't have food come into them, they can't survive. They yeah. have to learn how to survive on the land within them. They didn't have gardens. Like, that's a thing that we that ends up happening. They're like, oh, we have to grow a garden. Do we have anything to do that, question mark? Barely. And, like, things started to happen, and that's great. And then Bigfoot stamped it all out. But they didn't even have that. They 100% relied on getting food from, just like, you know, Ubered in for them, essentially. And you're like, that's not going to last. That was very short-sighted. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of these eco-villages that do produce any kind of uh, lands or acreages for food and stuff like that often they don't have enough to sustain everyone who's living on the site and so they once again you're dependent on the outside economy for also your means of survival your money because you got to pay for being out here it's not cheap to live on these places these eco villages another one is that anyone can come and go so it often means that eco-villages have to attract a variety of different people. And it's a, often it's a challenging ideology for an eco-village to make everyone feel comfortable because people are going to choose how they want to live. Their eco-villages need to be attractive. So they're designed not only for sustainable living, but 
personal, religious, and interpersonal ideas of bringing people together as a community. And we see this in the book. Every couple, every individual, yeah, they're all different individuals and people, but they had to be attracted to come and build in this community. And you've got your vegans, you've got your academic mm-hmm. uh, researcher, you've got Mostar, who's an artist, and then you've got um, Yvette and Tony, who are the model and the millionaire yeah. startup company. And then you've got our, our queer couple with Yvette and, sorry, I'm um, with... Um, I can't remember the women's mm-hmm. name, but there's just like this interesting amount of people yeah. that have to be attracted and people can come and go. Like originally Kate and Dan weren't supposed to be part of this community. It was her brother, but they left because it wasn't fitting their lifestyle. And these eco villages can't sustain themselves if people just come and go whenever they want. Yeah. And there's even, yeah, I think it's the Tony and Yvette and I couldn't be wrong that they're not the vegans. Maybe it's the booths. I it's forget. the booths or the vegan. Yeah. The ve- booths. Okay. Either way. So it's the Yvette and Tony. I think it was them that were like, yeah, I just want to like pop hip over, pop over to the city when we want to yeah. like the city life again. So I was like, okay, so you have two homes, check mark. Okay, I'll mental note for, for later with the amount of money you have. But it had to attract them with all of the technology. Hey, you can still get your Wi-Fi yep. signal. So that's really important. Don't even worry. The food will come to you. But look, the serene environment. Yeah. I mean, I live in a massive city with very little green space. And like we... People, generally speaking, need nature to feel contentment, feel calm, and feel good overall. And a lot of people, like us, particularly me, living in these urban areas, don't really get a lot of greenery. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of green space. And nature can help support our mental health and well-being in a lot of different ways. You know, some people like to go into nature they feel connected to something bigger than themselves but it can give us a sense of peace like peace of mind calmness just some breathing literal breathing space of some form of fresh air Mm -hmm. in this so i get it i get why they wanted to do this and i understand that yes sometimes nature can make you feel better and that's why katie's there i'm here because this is supposed to help me with my mental health and my relationship and stuff like that and there's i got like a bunch of these book quotes because they're so yeah so great but our city dwellers, our upper upper class, are definitely not doing too poorly with their money coming in to live in Green Loop. Book touches on classism, absolutely, because, you know, lower income people will not be able to afford to live there and just not work, question mark, as well. Yeah. Unless you want to hip over, like, just pop over to the city to do some work in your corporate job, whatever. Yeah. It made me so mad. Um, Zoom calls. You can't work without your Zoom oh, yeah, calls. Got, <laughs> yep, absolutely. Right? <laughs> Um, So a couple of things that were really interesting, like talking about, you know, going back to nature, nature versus nurture, city dwellers coming to nature versus nature, humans versus animals, this like big overarching theme. So a couple of quotes from the book. He believed that early humans were essentially good, but when humanity began to urbanize, it started separating themselves from nature, which also separated from their own nature as well. The ills of today can all be traced back to the corruption of civilization. Interesting, we brought that up earlier with regards to the philosophy of human nature. Studying hunter-gatherers, they have none of the problems that plague our so-called advanced societies. No crime, no addiction, no war, per se. Women weren't reduced to being virtuous sex slaves in a male-dominated society. That's a big one that hit me hard. Yeah. You know, generally, everybody was equal way back when. Another one, 
Who doesn't want to break free from the herd? I get why you'd want to keep the comforts of city life while leaving the city behind. Crowds, crime-filled noise, even in the burbs. So many rules, neighbors all up in your business. It's kind of a catch-22, especially in the United States, a society that values freedom when society by nature forces you to compromise that freedom. It's great to live free of the other sheet until you hear the wolves howl. And they talk about anthropomorphizing. Another yes. quote. They all want to live in harmony with nature before some of them realize too late that nature is anything but harmonious. Yes, I remember pulling that quote too, yeah. Yes, they are, again, deeply unprepared for nature because they don't understand nature. They don't belong in nature. Well, especially because they're trying to force nature to adapt to them and their lifestyles instead of humans adapting to nature and the role of, you're right, of that lifestyle. Like when you are choosing to, and like survivalism, that's a whole other, that's a whole other cultural movement out there. And when survivalists go out into the woods, they're going out to survive in the woods as you would live in the woods. Not, they're not taking their lives out there with them. Not taking the luxury. Their luxuries. They're all luxuries are gone. You're, you're, that's how you were living out there and this is what we see in this book like luxuries start going away as they learn to try and survive in the woods and then you see that it comes down to the basic needs of survival which between both groups between the green loops community and our cryptid that is hunting for resources because they've clearly been forced from their natural habitat close to the volcano and have to move down and mm-hmm. survive mm-hmm. and of course when it comes to resources and shelter heads. they're they're gonna butt heads in these these cryptids and this thing is really interesting and another idea maybe for someone to talk about later on is this whole idea of the matriarchalness of this book because mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting that we have Kate and Mostar who really are leading the community and at one point Mostar and Yvette butt heads over their ideas of how they're going to survive the situation yeah. and our cryptids who are also looking to survive the situation they're in is led by a female they're mostly females of these cryptids that Katie notices and that actually the male is a consort of the yeah. group so it's it was really interesting to show us that you know we're not necessarily prepared for what's out there when we decide to go out there absolutely i know i wouldn't be absolutely yeah. no, not 100%. do i know how to start a fire no am i going to kill animals not necessarily i don't want to kill animals again it comes down to the the survivalism of a vegan in yeah. a disaster um interesting maybe what are your thoughts on that jess but like if it came down to it would i want to kill that rabbit no but if i was starving i would eat animals because there's a vast massive massive difference between eating for survival and eating to excess yes. which is what we do in north america yeah we have thank you we factory farm animals we don't mm-hmm. have to eat them to survive here we're we're again we have the luxuries of having all the food supplied to us as we need to here right we are not we're a first world country so we have everything that we need here provided for us but when it came down to it i probably wouldn't survive because I don't know how to. Why would I even know how to? So like, yeah, that would seem really interesting to me. I'm like, oh, I can still get my Wi-Fi. Cool. But the survivalists, they would because they will become people of the land on the land. So they they would survive. So I get it. It's complicated. But like our lives are full of luxury and capitalism. Yes, I was going to say, I'm like, what are eco villages result of? Green capitalism. And we read this article that infuriated me, enraged me, same thing. Just like I've been like, I was screaming throughout reading it because I'm also, I'm not going to say a victim, but like, I get this. Yeah. And it's 
reading this book, going through this global pandemic, man, I I waver between a complete misanthropist to a humanitarian. It's it's touch and go every single day where I'm going to fall. But as human beings, we are essentially buying into our own destruction. Capitalism killing the planet, it's killing us, and we're destroying ourselves and our planet. This myth about humans that think that we're going to put our, put our survival first. No, animals, other animals do that. Other yes. species do that. We do not. We actually go out of our way to compromise survival and do everything but try to survive, right? You know, in this article, they talk about if the problem was so serious, someone would stop us. Somebody would do something. Quote, they will help us. Someone will do something. They aren't fucking doing anything. And they should. The powerful should be doing everything they can to help people, communities, our environment, the animals. But they don't. And it makes me think, like, do humans even have a survival instinct? And like I said, we've gotten to a point in our society where we are in denial and we have lessened the severity of it because we think, like you said, others will take care of it and correct it ourselves because we are told that the government will take care of this or there's some means of it. But because we also don't hear about it enough. And that was really interesting in that article about how we have gone from being active citizens and protecting our environment and taking care of our planet, our, you know, our home, to being consumers. Mm-hmm. That we are consumers of green capitalism, which is promoting green and sustainable options for people. So when you go out and they, they give you a bamboo straw or a paper straw instead of um, a plastic straw, in your mind you're like, yes, I'm contributing to the environment because the corporations are now trying to do sustainable green outcomes but at the end of the day at the end of the day it's not it's fishing is the the problem folks stop fucking eating animals (laughs) yeah it's it's there's a bigger thing that needs to happen how about that corporation instead of putting all the money into not using sprastic straws putting into money about helping to create more sustainable ways of like let's just stop over farming over factory industrialization like there's so many of these bigger things that these corporations can do instead of being like oh use reusable cups or reusable posts when you go grocery shopping yes we rely on large complex natural systems whether we want to agree on that or not that's just facts we need our environment to survive we don't need our technology to survive we need the environment to survive folks yeah and you would think that we're this super intelligent species that we're going to respond to all of this like red alert high alert our planet is dying we're like we're going to be on top of this you know what no this is bad let's radically alter our relationship with our natural world No, we are not. We are humans are experts in compartmentalizing, micromanaging and distraction. That's what we're doing. And this this article is really great because they brought up this idea of MCBs or micro micro consumerist bullocks, which are tiny issues like you talked about the straws, which is distracting us away from the bigger problems. And this like destroyed my soul because like Mm -hmm. I I am a person, I compost, I recycle. Like, I mean, I don't eat a completely whole foods plant-based diet. I got some mock meats and mock cheeses in there. So, you know, but I'm still doing, quote, what a good citizen of the planet's supposed to do, especially following a plant-based diet. But they talked about how if we buy a tote bag instead, that that would be better than using plastic bags. However, on estimate, the environmental impact of producing an organic cotton tote bag is the equivalent to that of 20,000 plastic ones. Uh. (laughs) I'm not the problem. You know who's the problem? 
the rich. That's what it comes down to. And both these articles that we're reading about <laughs> capitalism destroying our environment is because we are being, we, the working class and stuff like that, are being exploited by the upper class because yeah. at the end of the day, it's their money that could make the biggest changes, that could change the world and the way that we live and the way of protecting and saving our environment. And whenever they do these eco green alternatives a lot of air to, quotes here folks a lot of air quotes throughout this entire episode <laughs> these green alternatives that these yeah. richer corporations are doing are actually doing more harm than good because when you think it was like it's interesting that a, a millionaire out there is like oh i'm doing a green alternative by using solar panels for this and generating my energy stuff like that but then like you still own three houses think of all the resources that are going into sustaining those three houses and the lifestyle that you are living right now yeah yes green capitalism could work but the unfortunate thing is that only a certain amount of people can participate in green capitalism yeah. where the rest of us yeah. can't yeah. We, and we are being dictated our capitalism our green initiatives are being dictated by corporations telling us how they want us to do things to help maintain their status quo and their riches in the millions but not actually taking care of the ecological disasters that are happening all the time yes. and another big important thing that came out of this article that really interests me is social media and how we are so inundated now with just a lot of just noise that we yeah. don't often think or hear enough about the actual natural disasters that are happening around us and understanding the capacity or the extent of the global crisis that we are in and have been in for a long time. And I remember thinking back in the 90s, we heard about this stuff all the time and people were always talking yeah. about their activism and they're out there fighting stuff like that. And now that type of activism has turned into, well, fight with your dollars, but then our dollars are going to these smaller initiatives now, but then we're also not hearing about the all these problems. things that are happening, the bigger problems. Yeah. We hear of the after effects of these bigger problems, but not understanding the casca cascading effects from how it actually has a start point, which starts from something like industrialized farming that is poisoning our earth, uh, our green gases, right? Like when everyone's like, oh, you're driving cars, that's the CO2 in the environment. We're like, actually, it's the methane coming from all these factory farms that are actually producing all that, the hothouse effect. Yeah. And the article, you know, talked about the corporate agenda and this like enraged me. So in it, uh, they are saying that the most extreme example that this author had witnessed of green capitalism and those MCBs was a 2019 speech by the chief executive of the oil company Shell massive oil company, he instructed everyone to eat seasonally and recycle more. Fuck you. You're the problem. And so coming back to the book and everything, the people of Greenloop are the fucking problem. So, and, the, and what happens too is that the people who brought them there, Tony and Yvette, with yep. their wonderful idea because they're those, they're those multi-million startups and stuff like that. They're just like, they literally abandon everyone. They just yep. literally... Dropped out of the book, dropped out of the scene, were in complete denial. They're all about their success and their millions and stuff like that, and had no help to helping the people who needed to learn how to survive in this situation. And in the end of the day, I've got the feeling that Kate, because she is single income and working and living with someone who is a creative, was probably more of like the middle class, more yeah. of our generation of like, okay, well, it's on us to figure out how we need to survive. So yes. let's get down to basics and learn how to survive. Love that. I think that is a great ending to my final question All right. for us today. So the end of the book, it presents us with four different scenarios. So what do we think happened to Kate and Palomino, the sole child of Greenloop? Scenario one, the surviving creatures, the surviving Sasquatch, the big feet, regroup for a counterattack, and Palomino and Kate were taken away, probably killed. Scenario two, 
Kate and Palomino leave Green Loop with their weapons and they died somewhere in the woods. Scenario three is that they actually make it out alive and they're alive out there in the world. They actually manage to, to make it out, find help and survive. Scenario four is that Kate continues her quest to quote, kill them all. She tracked all the, all the Sasquatches down and killed them. So Jess, where do you fall? What scenario do you think happened? Or do you have a different idea altogether? But what do you think happened to Kate and Palomino? I think that for me, like I said, I was disappointed with yeah. the ending and the ambiguous ending. But to me, the more likely scenario is scenario two, that they eventually did leave the the encampment and uh, over time, because as we know, in long-term survival situations, you lose your cognitive impair- impairment and they could have fallen victim to, to dying uh, to their exposure yeah, and resources yeah, around them. Winter was kind of around the corner. So for me, I mean, the like... inspiring um, grim scenario four I really like where Kate continues her quest to kill them all to track them down and kill them that wouldn't be the most serving of now caring for a child Mm -hmm. I mean I actually like though I think that's rad and I would love that but I feel like it's scenario three that they actually do make it out alive and they're just like alive somewhere in the world we just haven't found them yet like they're probably like hungry their rations of sasquatch meat and everything else that they had can only live off only animal protein for so long folks that would have eventually gone away and i think they were probably very ill maybe like half starred very malnourished but they are out there in the world we just haven't found them yet because I think by the time in the book it's like three months later we still haven't found Kate we haven't found Palomino what's happened maybe like just like recovering in some hospital bed somewhere in a small town somewhere but yeah I'd like to think that they make it out alive and they're okay somewhere. you're more optimistic than I was I'm like they're dead (laughs) they died (laughs) I mean that's very practical but yes in this scenario because I went through that whole journey with them I like to think that they live I mean Kate's badass she could have she could protect Palomino I'd like to think they are alive somewhere just like people some squatches are dumber than others when you think about it probably the ones that are seen the most are the dumb ones they're the ones that get spotted and now we've arrived at spencer's final thoughts this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor brutalities since we're spinsters we obviously love tea one of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold rainy day or with a good book absolutely with a mug of delicious hot Tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more, but what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. Bigfoot is everywhere and part of popular culture. We see Bigfoot in shows, animation, books, popular television series. Like, there's so many documentaries. There are movies. There are Har- There's Harry and the Hendersons. And there has apparently been a sighting of Bigfoot in every state in the U.S. except for Hawaii in the last past decades. But is Bigfoot real or not? 
Who knows? But what I do know, and what is real, is while nature is beautiful and powerful, it is in crisis. We are living in a global environmental crisis with increasing effects of climate change. Half the time, we are in denial about how bad it is just because we are unaware of the information that often eludes us on purpose. We don't know anything until we hear about environmental disasters that impact our chain supply, hurt a stock of a major corporation, or kills hundreds of people. The media portrays nature as our enemy and that is getting out of control. However, we're not thinking about how these disasters are not just one-offs, but are really a result of ecological environments that are being eroded away by capitalism through corporate greed. Eco-living and sustainable approaches are just one of the many answers, but it's still an ideology that is only truly accessible to the upper class. A class of wealthy people who don't know what true survivalism is and living in nature truly means. It'll always be about making nature accommodating to their lifestyle instead of humans learning to live among nature and accepting the boundaries within. This was a rousing discussion with a very interesting and damning research. And I could be definitely a better human, but I'm really good at the distraction method uh, and compartmentalizing of the crisis that is happening on our planet. But in order to actually help our planet, our environment, and to slow down climate change is to stop burning fossil fuels, turn to a plant-based diet, and use sustainable sources of energy like solar, wind, and water. But guess what? This makes people very uncomfortable, and it's definitely less political. Later on in the book, Kate calls the remaining Green Loop residents a tribe. She says, this is our tribe. A tribe is defined as a social division in a traditional society consisting of families or communities linked by social, economic, religious, or blood ties with a common culture and dialect, typically having a recognized leader. When it came down to survival in Green Loop, everyone was turned into an equal. Everyone was human. Class no no longer mattered. Money no longer matters. Technology doesn't matter. It was about doing what you needed to protect yourself in the face of disaster. They helped each other and themselves to the best of their abilities. In the epilogue of de-evolution, there's a quote. I'm not talking about revenge. This is deeper, more primitive. What if those poor dumb brutes flicked a switch in Kate that's waiting and and in all of our DNA? It kind of makes me think that... Maybe humans do have a survival instinct after all, but I remain skeptical. And that ends our review of Max Brooks' De-Evolution. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music, Robies, and also to all you listeners. And we want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com. On our social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, just search for Spinsters of Horror. We also have a Facebook group, Spinsters of Horror Coven. We're on Letterboxd. Just find us at Horror Spinsters, YouTube, Spinsters of Horror. And very recently, we joined Clubhouse, starting monthly discussions on, well, previous episodes of the podcast. So please check us out there and come hang out with us. Please rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on any podcasting app you use. We also have merch. Please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts. Next month, we are going back to history class with part two of the origins of horror. Next up are the decades, the 1940s and 50s, and we will also touch on where international horror was by this time in history. But until then, remember, the future of fear is female. <laughs>